a break there. This is Yasser Lohati speaking to you straight from the Paris south side banlieue. It's been a while since we last spoke, giving the hectic events of the past month and a half. I'm back online with you on this new episode of The Breakdown, still from the south side banlieue of Paris. And this time I'm honored to be joined by Lindsay, who happens to be a journalist based in France. Originally from the US, she will tell us about her life in France as an American journalist and as a foreign observer of French society, French politics. And to, for God's sake, break all the myths of this uh, series called uh, Paris. So hopefully she will do the job for me because I cannot take it anymore with these tweets on Emily in Paris. Lindsay, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm honored. Uh, we spoke before mm-hmm. and we spoke about you are coming to France and you've been watching the latest developments. Now, of course, we had these episodes of Emmanuel Macron summoning the New York Times, Washington Post and accusing them of being biased. You saw the latest marches of the multiple months you know, from the... Uh, anti-police brutality marches of June 2020 to the latest on the global security bill. But before we get into that, Lindsay, please, please tell us or remind or tell our, our listeners who you are and what brought you to Paris and what made you stay here. <laughs> so I, um, I came uh, 14 years ago. Uh, I was a, a student of French literature and language, and I still am a Uh, forever student of literature and language. Um, and, you know, I think the desire to live in France uh, came for me more, more so because I felt I didn't fit in in the U.S. So I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who might be able to relate to the idea of not feeling that they fit in uh, in their own home. And certainly I was drawn to a European lifestyle. I was drawn to a place where I could take everything that I learned and then apply it. So, in, you know, in my daily life, where would that be? Where could I speak French every day? Well, uh, obviously the first choice is, is, is France before it is French-speaking Canada. Um, so, you know, so I've been here and um, have been working as a freelance journalist um, since 2012. And I cover culture and travel and business. Um, but certainly, you know, I've been able to, since Macron has been president, I've had opportunities to comment. And sometimes it's commenting on my own podcast, which is called the New Paris Podcast. And that's based on my first book, um, which looked at how Paris was evolving or has been evolving. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've written about, uh, you know, for Fortune magazine, they they asked me to cover my feeling on what the Gilets Jaunes represented Um, for for Macron's administration. So this is now going back to 2018, in the fall. Um, and I think that's where I first really started um, taking a, a heightened interest um, in the ways that his politics and his governance was differing from his promises, his campaign promises. Um, and, and certainly, you know, that happens in all sorts of administrations. But given that, you know, I live in the 11th arrondissement of Paris. So, you know, given that the, the Gilets Jaunes protests were also right on my doorstep, um, as well as, you know, some horrific incidents in the last five years in general, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm cons- I, I grew concerned by the way these events um, and the protests were being handled by 
authorities. So, uh, you know, I think that even though I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily get a chance to do heavy political reporting, you know, for the likes of Politico, I have other ways of trying to document and, and share what's happening here to an audience who, you know, already is looking to me for something other than the Emily in Paris narrative, um, but also who may not be seeking out some of the the hard realities of what life in in Paris and France is like and what the government is doing. Um, and I think certainly the events of this year, namely uh, the the events you mentioned in, in 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 the summer, and that corresponds with the eruption of Black Lives Matter protests around the world. Um, you know, I think people are are finally paying attention. Foreigners are paying attention to what's happening here. So I think it's a you know it's important that the people who are reporting on um, what's going on politically and and socially are not just the people writing for, you know, political uh, political columns. For example, I think we need to get this into more of a mainstream audience. It's true that people don't necessarily have the energy, you know, to kind of get into the, the details of you know political maneuvers, etc. And it's true that people feel overwhelmed. You know, 2020 is going to be remembered as, I don't know, an awful year for, for you know, for, for the whole planet. And people, maybe sometimes they just don't have this energy when they get home to kind of, they are already highly mobilized emotionally, intellectually in their lives. So for them to kind of give them this break of, you know, political analysis, they may not be ready. And that's why actually your podcast, Lost in Cheese Land, uh, which I like, by the way. The title, I <laughs> well, so the Lost, in Lost in Cheeseland is just sort of my internet handle, but the podcast itself is called The New Paris. And I think it's, obviously I cover things beyond just Paris because, you know, certainly if we're talking about uh, the, the sort of like a lot is Islamophobia in this country, or we're talking about racism that goes well beyond Paris, but it's an entry point. It's a way for people who are interested in things related to France can get some of the lighter topics, but they can also get some of the more serious discussions from me. And I, you know, I have on people, people you know, like Aida Alami, and I've had yeah. on, you know, Lauren Collins from the New Yorker, and people okay, who, and yeah, and who are who are invested in these topics, and so we can have a discussion without it being, you know, needing to be, you know, well, you need to you need to read the, you know, the New York Times religiously or Politico yeah. religiously to understand these things. So, uh, so this is actually. This answer the question. It doesn't speak about cheese. <laughs> Not really. Not I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> cheese comes up occasionally. Um, you know, I created that name. You know, now in two thousand nine. So I, I've certainly outgrown it. But it's it's you know you're in that like growing phase where you're not yeah. sure if you should change it because people know it and know you as that. So I'm I'm in a I'm in a transitional decision making period here. <laughs> and this transition actually comes with this year again with the multiple uh, rallies you saw and something that caught my attention is the difference between the Emmanuel Macron that maybe America heard about. Uh, some people branded him even as mm. the French Obama, which first by the way um, I disagree with Obama's politics anyway. So this might not be very popular, you know, especially now that Biden, you know, is elected and Trump is, you know, hopefully soon out of the, out the White House. But many branded him as this liberal who's going to fight, you know, Marine Le Pen and who's going to bring back the, you know, the Republic, take, take away the Republic from the far right and make the Republic fulfill its promises. 
I was already interviewed, you know, during the presidential election months before the um, the, the the outcome, and to me, I didn't buy it. That you know, it's not when you see someone coming out of nowhere mm. as Emmanuel Macron was back then. He nobody knew about him two years before the election. All of a sudden, he became the go-to guy, you know, for the second round. That he was going to not only uh, take over, you know, you know, the left, the right, and and then you know, beat Marine Le Pen, which he did. And to me, the choice given to us as voters was either Uber or the far right. So extreme neoliberal policies or right. hard identity right. politics. But Emmanuel Macron is actually doing both of them. We have seen a dismantling of all the safety nets, socially speaking, um, a further, a further, further, further uh, weakening of the <laughs> state. We, now, in this year alone, a million people have crossed or have fallen below the poverty line due to the COVID-19. 45,000 yes, people have died. very alarming. 200,000 yeah. are about or have or are about to press charges for the mishandling of the crisis. Uh, hundreds of companies are shutting down or laying off people without it being covered. So what struck you the most between Emmanuel Macron as we see him today and the promises he made as he was running for election and trying to say to to please you know the international media and then i will ask you what was going on between him and them well so you know it's very interesting because i think france really felt like after hollande and his policies and his handling of you know namely the attacks in 2015 which i mean i don't think anyone could have no one's prepared to to deal with the emotional weight of something like that. But, you know, I think people really wanted a change. Um, and, and, and in that sense, maybe that's where the comparison to Obama comes in, is that we felt like we needed someone who was not totally anti-establishment, but not from the same pedigree necessarily, um, and someone younger. Um, and I think that's, that's part of why he was embraced to a degree. But if you remember the breakdown in terms of who voted and who abstained, he didn't have an overwhelming majority. It was a decision to make sure Marine Le Pen didn't get in. And I think that's where, you know, the foreign media likes to gloss over, or not, not necessarily, you know, the people who follow this closely, but, you know, the general populace who look to France and they, they, they see who's president and how these processes go, you know, they looked at that as being like, Oh, some fresh air, some fresh blood into the into the into the system that's very, you know, stiff. Um, he had some interesting promises, certainly in terms of com you know, competitivity or competitiveness for for the tech industry. You know, he's very he appealed to certain people's interests while not really responding to others. Um, and I think a lot of it was, you know before you actually get elected, you have all these visions. And then as soon as you're in, you realize how things are going and need to then prepare for the next election or the next term. And that's when you start seeing things uh, like his veer, his veering toward the right, you know, and you see that this is just some sort of a strategy to, again, pull right-wing voters to make sure that we don't end up with Marine Le Pen again in 2022. But that that's not enough, right? And, and, and it goes back to what I feel like is a very unappealing set of candidates. No one really felt like they were being represented. You had Francois Fillon, who frankly was, you know, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. 
who crashed, you know, who crashed and burned and, you know, and is also older and very much part of the establishment. You had people who were completely, um, you know, unqualified and, and no real socialist candidate who, who could, you know, who could rally the left, not the extreme left, but the, the left. And so, again, you're in a position where you're voting for someone or you're, you're putting your, your, your support behind someone who's just sort of like the least awful. Well, you spoke about the left. Actually, what we saw is that the mainstream left actually sabotaged itself by turning right. well, against Benoit Hamon. Because Benoit Hamon had, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm notorious for not backing any candidates that refrain from doing it, <laughs> but Benoit Hamon really had a progressive agenda that fit into the mainstream left-wing narrative. He spoke about, you know, the healthcare problem, the environment, racism, universal income, foreign policy, bringing the country back together. And he won the socialist primaries. And despite that, the socialist party turned against him. All the heavyweights of the party said, no, we're going to vote for Emmanuel Macron. And then Emmanuel Macron actually, you know, uh, kind of siphoned all these, yes. you know, you know, heavyweights like, you know, Jean-Yves Le Drian, who is today the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, etc. So I think there was a convergence between Macron trying to appear as a fresh promise of change, right? Like Obama was right, back right. You know, in 2000 and, uh, I forgot, 2008. And today we see Emmanuel Macron actually, I mean, what triggered the alarm for me first, you know, he, I have no track record of him, so I couldn't, to me, like, that's very suspicious. And second is that he kept going left and right. Right, the flip-flopping, flip so, people don't like that. Yeah, it's hard to trust exactly. people who flip-flop. So for example, on the question of colonization, on one day he says it's a crime against humanity to please, you know, uh, voters of <clears throat> African descent. And three days later, no, 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 no. He because he gets heat from you know the, the hard right. He you know he you know backtracks and says something completely different. That was already a sign. And let's see for for example when it comes to him embracing the idea that laicity, mm. the secular law that oh. everybody you know hears about. You know a, a reminder to our English listeners, English speaking listeners. Excuse me. It's a very simple law. It's separation of church and state. There is nothing exceptional about it. Well, except that it doesn't present itself entirely like the US version of secularism. So, indeed, you know, and, and it was created originally to keep the Catholic Church out of the affairs of the state. But the idea was that people could still practice as they please, whatever their religion is. Um, and, and that's where there's blurring of lines because of the way the law has been amended at various points in recent history. Um, and, and, and in a way that looks, and, and obviously to, to the average French person, looks as though it's trying to uh, stifle the practice among Muslims. So, you know, it's very hard to, you know, people, people forget that it originally was meant to keep, you know, all religious affairs out of the state. But what it, the way that they go after the headscarf, the way these, you know, the, the Burkina, the Burkini, the way that, you know, we talk about not allowing uh, with in recent, in recent years, what well, this was like this year or last year when the uh, teacher wasn't, a, or the, the parent wasn't allowed to go on a field trip with her uh, yeah. son because she the, was. The, the Chattel, yes. Uh, circular minister, uh, ministry circular. Yes. So, you know, you're, you're seeing these, um, 
these these incidents that you know are, are couched in laicite but are in fact abuses um and and so back to what you said before i mean yes you have obviously you had infighting in the socialist party which didn't help you know present a a, a convincing um campaign once Amon was the candidate and once they were all on the stage. Um, and then you had the flip-flopping, as you said, as you, as you mentioned for Macron. And, and ultimately that's what he's been doing since he's been, uh, since he's been president. And you get the sense that he is putting his feelers out there. He's trying to, as sort of a centrist uh, or sort of someone who, who doesn't firmly identify as being left or right is trying to appeal to all sides, but makes very, um, paradoxical decisions um, and ends up isolating all sides. Uh, and so with, with respect to what's been going on and the, um, the ongoing debate about laicite, again, I think it's, it's easy to assume that, well, the French love to say that the Americans and anybody who's reporting on this uh, from the foreign media don't you don't understand. understand. We couldn't you know, possibly understand. Yes. Right. Um, and I think it's like a, a you know, France constantly has its blinders on. It won't consider opinions from the outside uh, because I think ultimately they know that they stand to have their reputation further bruised on an international stage. So if people on the inside of France believe that, you know, there have been there, there have been tremendous violations of human rights and there have there's been a, a long history of racism and discrimination and um, in your in your opinion piece from this week, you talked about you know uh, supporting dictators in, in other na- nations. Um, you know, if if the world stage and sort of the average person living in you know let's say the UK, the United States, or you know in Asia understood this about France, it stands to really tarnish this image as uh, a a destination, a global destination of high culture, art, and and, and human rights. Um, and it's, it's history as trying to be sort of a country that instills culture in other nations, which is already debatable as a, as a thing to do. You know, this sort of colonizer behavior is, is you know, the, the idea that they need to save another nation is already problematic, but, but the idea that 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 they reject that as problematic all goes to sort of like, you know, trying to bury their head in the sand and protect this one story they've told about themselves for so long. Um, but now the, the truth is, is sort of, you know, breaking through fissures in the story. And, you know, that's, that's sort of what strikes me with his um, attacks against the foreign media because he wants to control the narrative other presidents previously in France. I mean, France broadly wants to control their own narrative. Um, and and Macron, of course, given his personality, given this, you know, Jupiterian behavior, as we love to talk about, uh, means that he can't he can't bear the idea that that narrative and that idea that France is still a great power and a great saving nation and a humane nation, that that would be tarnished. Um, and unfortunately, I think he's, it's like you're in too deep. You're trying to cover up a lot of negative things all the while trying to push out positives. And in fact, you really should just be honest and transparent and say, you know, we've messed up and there's a lot of things we're trying to address and deal with, but they don't want to do that. But that, 
you know, actually you're raising what, you know, philosopher Hannah Arendt, you know, wrote about uh, in terms of how our political system does not promote, you know, uh, moral values. It promotes, you know, the, the mm. smartest liar who can manipulate and go around the system. And that's exactly what we got because we keep condoning into our participation and turning a blind eye on our responsibilities as citizens to seek accountability and demand transparency. But you spoke about something I really wanna, which would be actually the center of this conversation, Lindsay. It's about Emmanuel Macron's relationship with foreign media. Now, we saw for the past mm. year, uh, the lies of this government. You know, I'm not trying to be populistic, but they said the pandemic will be, no, no the, the epidemic will be, you know, confined in China, there is no risk. When the French ambassador in China warned the government as far back as October 2019. They helped China by sending them stocks of you know, masks and gloves and medical equipment to cope with the uh, epidemic in the Wuhan region. Now, uh, two months down the road, you know, the, the news starts growing that there is something about to happen. People remember the SARS epidemic in the early 2000s and the government and experts keep saying, don't worry, nothing is going to happen. Now comes you know, January, March, and we have the municipal elections coming up to elect uh, the mayors in uh, France. And then the government is more focused on trying to get the best out of the election than actually handling the pandemic. So much so that the former Minister of Health, uh, Agnès Buzyn, who was mm. the Minister of Health as the epidemic was hitting the world and becoming a pandemic, she resigns and runs for election to become mayor of Paris. A couple of weeks down the, down the road, she starts crying, she bursts in tears. Uh, we knew a tsunami was about to hit us, quote unquote. In the meantime, you know, before that, you had the repression of the Yellow Vest movement. We saw people getting maimed, losing their eyes, shattered bones, muscles, and fully documented police brutality. Uh, we saw various reports, documentaries, and you know, tragically enough, now Emmanuel Macron wants to pass a bill that would prohibit uh, filming the police. Yes. And in the midst of all that, you know, after all that, excuse me, in June, we have the Black Lives Matter marches in uh, center, uh, central Paris. And we see the anger, the deconfinement of angers. People, as the lockdown mm -hmm. is you know, lifted, people take to the street and express their political opinions. It goes on. And then Emmanuel Macron gets extremely irritated with foreign news outlets, the Washington Post, the New York Times, to some extent political, but more, you know, more aggressively with the Financial Times when they called, yeah. you know, the, uh, the, edi the editor and took down a piece critical of his policies. I'm just going to add one piece of information before you, you get into that, Lindsay, is that there was a piece ordered by Liberation, a supposedly left-wing outlet, and the piece was ordered to academics that I happen to know. The academics wrote a piece and they used all the data available of, on France's counterterrorism, the effects of the so-called struggle against radicalization, the effects on communities, the effects on human rights, and if yes or no, it does reduce terrorist attacks or the prospect of terrorist attacks. The, their conclusions was, were no. They actually feed the narrative that Muslims are a suspect community. They do not protect the country and at the end of the day, the rule of law becomes, you know, the, uh, the loser. What was your reaction when you saw Emmanuel Macron literally summoning French news outlets, excuse me, foreign news outlets, as an American living in Paris, 
And for me, who lived in the US and who still goes there on a regular basis, I know that freedom of expression is something extremely sacred. You don't mess with that. What was your reaction mm. when you saw, well, you know, this, you know, conflict exploding to the point of, you know, now the New York Times writing on Macron and he's talking back to them? Well, first of all, I think that the, the reporters in question at the New York Times and the Washington Post are, are highly skilled, very thorough, and they understand very well the issues at hand. They understand laïcité. They understand the you know the events of not only the last five years but they understand the full history these are very capable reporters um this is not some sort of a conspiracy to take down a, a foreign president it's to report the facts and the facts are that there are some very alarming and very dangerous uh actions taking place across france and the policies including this global security uh bill is is extremely oppressive um so so to say that the foreign media is suddenly doing a bad job is laughable not only laughable but it's like really you, you don't you, don't you have more important things to be to be handling on your own turf rather than go and you know call up media journalists for the new york times to complain or to to engage on on how or why the reporting had previously been done poorly. I mean, to me, it's 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 an astounding display of authoritarian kind of behavior. Um, and and frankly, there's a whole slew of neoconservative French journalists who have doubled down also on their anti-American media narrative, um, and that's also very concerning because you know it's it's it's. The, it's it's similar to the way Trump and and his supporters have continued to call, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post fake news because they're reporting things that you know they don't want to read. Um, what's strange to me is is also as you say that the Liberation had come up with similar conclusions, um, you know, expressing the danger in these strategies in terms of the long term effects of not only to to protect against terrorism, but also to um, improve the relationship among citizens and between the, the state and citizens. Um, and yet, where is the takedown of La Liberation? Uh, you know, so I think he sees from a diplomatic perspective that he's, you know, he could have, I don't know, let's say a Biden, you know, coming down his neck pretty soon, or he could have, you know, uh, partners who are going to look to France with great skepticism and concern given the coverage in, in foreign media. The other thing is that it's not like it's just the English-speaking media. I mean, at various points, uh, I believe that uh, German press has also presented the facts as they are. Um, and, and I just think it's a very myopic way of handling a situation that is very nuanced, very complex, very painful for a lot of people. And what good, what, what kind of image does that send that you're going to try to take down two of the most prestigious and important news outlets in the world because you're not happy with the way, you know, the reporting is going. That's, that's crazy. Um, so from, as an American here who has followed this and who really respects the journalists in question who report for, uh, for those two outlets, it's very, very alarming. Um, and, and, and goes hand in hand with, you know, the outcry against the security bill. 
Um, and, and as we know, as of what, yesterday or Monday, they are now going to rewrite Article 24, uh, following what happened not only at the, the protests on Saturday, mm-hmm. last Saturday, uh, but you know, additional violence against citizens in Paris um, who were you know, filmed, the police were filmed uh, using excessive violence. Um, and it's like, yeah, there's a problem here. And it's a good thing that the New York Times and the Washington Post are covering this because it can't just be la libération or it can't just be le monde. If we really want to take a critical view of what's happening in this country, it needs to come from the outside. This actually uh, speaks to me uh, uh, at a personal level because when I take a look at how the French media is covering uh, Macron's policies and the almost consensus on either being quiet, minimizing, or outright, as you said earlier, uh, agreeing uh, with his policies, we remind our listeners that there are two flagship bills being passed, one of them being the global security bill, which would uh, reinforce the repressive apparatus of the French state, you know, most notoriously uh, prohibiting prohibition on filming the police, uh, drones to monitor public events with facial recognition, which would actually mean literally uh, guessing people's political opinions based on where they are at a specific moment. Uh, giving city police officers who are less trained than national police officers uh, obscene amounts of power that could also, you know, uh, be replacing, you know, national police officers on many matters. On the parallel side, we have the bill on the so-called Islamist separatism or officially reinforcing Republican values. Mm. Whatever that means, and I invite our listeners to read my piece on the new Arab, the, uh, the glorious hype and ugly reality of French values. Yes. Now, You spoke about the Article 24. Actually, the Article 24 may be removed from the security bill and put as Article 25 in the uh, uh, bill on Islamist separatism. Mm. So it will not disappear. Oh, great. This is where the danger lies. Now, since you spoke of, you know, Macron's, you know, frontal assault on foreign news outlets, and because uh, the... A better coverage these times can only come from you know, abroad. I mean, like, you know, look, you know, I myself never spoken a French media outlet, and I gave something like 40 or 45 interviews in the past month and zero on French news outlets. And I speak French, English. Now I have to speak, you know, okay, I have to speak out, and people are unhappy about it. Let me yeah. speak in my own damn country, you know, if I can do it, you know, here. So my question is, is how far would you go? And I know this might be provocative, and I don't want to be very simplistic, but I'll take the risk. How far would you go to in comparing Macron's behavior towards the press and that of Trump back home? It's tricky because I, I hesitate to do I these to, to do these comparisons, even when you know people were were constantly saying, uh, you know, with regard to the the handling of the pandemic, right? You know, uh, yeah. my friends and my family back home would say, you can't possibly say that France is anywhere near as bad as, as the US. And, I, and, and for me, it's, it's comparing two very different circumstances that aren't actually so easily compared. Um, you know, both of them involved lying and covering up uh, slash in, with France. I mean, I think it's honestly a strategy of sort of babying the population and not being transparent when I think we should tell people more of the full story. Um, and with regard to this attack on the on the the press, I don't. 
the delivery is different, right? He's not going out and saying fake news, fake news. In fact, someone like Trump wouldn't even get, well, he's not using those words, right? And I think, I think words do matter here. Um, he, he's not refusing to give interviews to those, um, uh, to, to, to journalists because they represent a certain, you know, um, outlet. He, he will refuse interviews from the Washington Post because it doesn't fit with his, you know, his, his overall, his overall goal. Uh, but he's, I don't think it's the same kind of behavior as Trump. I would say it's probably more similar to behaviors we're seeing in other countries. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't fully have enough knowledge on, on the way other authoritarian leaders or, or leaders who are leaning in this way, how they handle the press. I, you know, obviously he's not Erdogan and he's not, um, uh, you know, Putin, but, but, the, but there are, are worrying signs. I, so my feeling is that I don't think they can be, can be, so easily compared, but I do think we should see this as a red flag and, and be monitoring it and continue to put our finger on, um, on this issue as it evolves, as he continues to do this. I mean, he's giving an interview, I want to say it's tonight, on Brut. Yes, yes. yes. Okay, he, yeah. Macron is doing a live interview on Brut. So he says yes, because that reaches a younger audience. But he says and he no. He wants to get the young vote for exactly. the second round. Yeah. Exactly. But he says no to James McCauley of the Washington Post. Uh, so, I again, I don't think that that's necessarily, um, <clears throat> you know, akin to every every media communication strategy that Trump has um, has followed. However, it is something that needs to be followed closely, and we see how this evolves, especially as we're gearing up toward eventually a 2022 re-election campaign. Um, so I don't know. I, I tend to be very nervous about making those stark comparisons. That's why I, you know, I didn't want to say is Macron like Trump, but to what extent can Macron be right. compared to Trump in terms of his dealing with the okay, media? So, so that's why I did not. So I, so it's concerning, but I don't think, you know, I don't think he's, I think luckily the um, the foreign media is very equipped to blow this right back in 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 Macron's face in a way and and we've seen that happen the the it's not just the New York Times and the Washington Post but you know the Guardian has been very good at covering some of these um these what I would call missteps in his in his approach to handling these the, these issues um the FT has then you know uh been very, very um, resistant to accept that a president of France could behave this way. So with Trump, I think it's, you know, it's uncontrollable. With this, yeah. I think Macron stands to be potentially put back in his place by some very, very important media outlets. I tend to, this to, uh, to doubt it because um, the word I got from several journalists and, you know, is that many newsrooms and editors, they don't, they want to make sure that Marine Le Pen loses. So they don't want to hit Macron, you know, too hard, too, hard. too much with the risk of, you know, him losing the election for a Marine Le Pen. But actually Marine Le Pen has already been embraced by the mainstream, at least in France, because she's no longer considering get, uh, leaving the Eurozone. She's no longer considering leaving, you know, the European Union, and she's no longer considering questioning the capitalist establishment because she embraced 
the rules of the market. Before she was in favor of more, more sovereignty, more control on capital, more control on the on the transfer of goods. But yes. but that's true now. She could already she could change her her story again. Yeah, but you know, I'm 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 gonna maybe go against your uh, uh, I'm gonna say <laughs> a segment of you know of you know um, of, of speciality, but. Uh, Journalists oftentimes tend to be very short-sighted, so they will cover what she's saying today without a relation to the past and without any projection of, given what we know of the character, that she can flip down the line. I mean, like to see uh, Raphael Baquet from Le Monde uh, speaking of Marine Le Pen as a, uh, how can I say, credible candidate. I mean, like, have you seen her, her debate with Macron the second round? She can possibly be no, taken seriously, but... I know time is running out. My last question, Lindsay, is given what you know from you know, this administration, what your own experience on, of French society, how do you see things evolving, keeping in mind Macron uh, and his policies, our institutions? We don't have checks and balances as you do in the US. We have separation of powers, which is not true because <laughs> the justice you know, depart you know, department in France Prosecutors are nominated by the executive branch of power. And when you, with your sense of how you felt the anger of French people with all the problems, mm -hmm. unemployment, the pandemic, et cetera, how do you see things evolving, to, especially to those who are watching Emily in Paris today? Um, I don't think it's going to get better yet by any means. I think we have a lot more fighting and protesting to do, and I think we're going to see that continue. There's a lot of unhappiness and misery that's not being addressed. And... Yes, we're in a pandemic year, so there's, there's, you know, all of that is going to be amplified. But this is the time where we need to make sure that our structures are there to support citizens in a time of crisis. And I don't believe we're there. Um, so I, I foresee this being a very painful next several years. Um, and especially when it feels to me like a lot of decisions, including, you know, you know, the way that they, uh, the state has, you know, destroyed a refugee camp. You know, which which led to the protests two weeks ago uh, at République, that it's all to try to make a very clean and Emily in Paris friendly uh, city for the Olympic Games. That that is what's riding on a lot of this. It is make sure that we can, you know, stomp some of this out to make sure that we're we're pushing the country into a place where we're ready to have lots of eyes on it in 2024. And I don't think we're there. Um, and I think that a lot of these decisions come because there's fear that too much is going to be known by a wider audience with all eyes looking on the country in the run-up to these Olympic Games. Um, so I think that is a factor that isn't addressed enough, actually, that some of this is motivated by what's riding on a on a, on a you know an international uh, competition like that that's going to bring in billions of people into this uh, into this city. Um, so no, I, I, I foresee this getting worse before it gets better. Lindsay Tramuta, thank you very much for your time. I remind our listeners that you are the author of the new Paris and the new Parisienne at Abrams Books. You are also a podcaster yourself on the new Paris, I guess available on most you know, you know, streaming platforms. Uh, for those who want to read your writings, you write for the New York Times, CN Traveler, Afar Media, Fortune Magazine, and Glamour Magazine. So. I thank you again for your time and for your analysis. Thank you so much. I don't have that many uh, Americans who live in France who can give this perspective and compare, you know, both countries, you know, and their, you know, uh, dynamics. 
please stay safe. Yes, you Social too. Wear a mask. And let's uh, let's touch base again in uh, in a year. We'll see how things have evolved. As many would say, inshallah. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Talk to you soon. <laughs> thank you. As for you, dear listeners, thank you very much for staying with us during these past 40 minutes with our guest, Lindsay Tramuta. If you think this podcast deserves your support to become more sustainable and viable on the long run, please make a donation on cjl, that's charliejulietlima.ong, Oscar November Golf, forward slash English, and then click on donation. That would help us set up the proper working team. So this podcast does not entirely rely on a single person. Thanks again. I will talk to you in the next episode. In the meantime, stay safe, social distancing, wear a mask, and stay alert when it comes to human rights and civil liberties. That's the bare minimum we deserve.